and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. And it's great to be with you, Ashley, because it is snowing. I know, it's the first big snow day, or snow uh, uh, in Brooklyn, at least. I know in Ohio, you got snow a little bit earlier, but it is coming down right now, and we're expected to get like 12 inches, I think. I am really sad because... First snow in New York is like the best mm-hmm. and I'm sad to be it's missing it. Magical. So that has me a little homesick, but we do have some pretty snow here in Ohio. It hasn't uh, turned into the gross kind yet. So delightful yes. and very uh, fitting uh, because our drink today was inspired by the snow. Yes, we are having hot toddies, which are warm and delicious and perfect for snow days, even if we have to work on our snow days now. <laughs> yeah, I want to especially shout out my father-in-law, uh, J.R. Roden, who has been supply, I've been raiding his liquor cabinet to drink for work, <laughs> quote unquote, this week. Um, and he also loves this show. So thank you, J.R., oh. for for supplying the booze this this uh, season. Yeah. And who are we talking to, Zach? Today we're talking to Greg Iwinski. Greg is an Emmy-nominated comedy writer and a performer who currently writes for Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. You may have heard of that. Yeah. He's previously written for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and worked with Second City and IO Theaters. Yeah. So- We figured it has been a long, hard year and we wanted to end uh, on a a lighter note, maybe (laughs) Um, with some laughs. But that said, Greg is also a very deep thinker and insightful in the way that faith and comedy intersect um, and and have a role to play in our politics. Yeah. So stick around for that conversation later. But first, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Our first story comes from the Vatican, where there has been a lot of controversy over the nativity scene of all things. So the Vatican unveiled its unconventional scene uh, last week. And Twitter kind of erupted in criticism. Yep. So images started flying around and people were pointing out there there's an astronaut and a kind of spooky Darth Vader like figure in the nativity. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of hard to describe uh, exactly what this looks like. So I would encourage you to Google this. (laughs) Very postmodern, very blocky. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Like some neon and... They kind, of, I, they kind of evoked like very large chess pieces to me, um, but spookier. I don't know. Uh, but before we give our own hot takes on this uh, Vatican scene, uh, we wanted to give you some of the backstory, which explains uh, why this appeared in St. Peter's Square. Uh, so each year, dioceses from across Italy try to get their nativity scenes showcased at the Vatican. And the Vatican tries to highlight artists and materials from different regions. That's right. And so this year... Vatican governors selected a nativity made by students and teachers at an art institute in Abruzzo, which is known for ceramics. And so these figures were made over a 10-year period starting in 1965 when people were excited about the space race that was uh, taking over the globe. Yes. So that might explain the astronaut. (laughs) Um, And uh, some more context. Uh, In a letter on nativities last year, Pope Francis talked about um, how children and adults, too, like to add their own uh, figurines to uh, the nativity sets they put up in, in their homes. And he said, quote, each in its own way, these 
fanciful additions show that in the new world inaugurated by Jesus, there's room for whatever is truly human and for all God's creatures. Maybe even aliens. Zach, did you did you add any fun like Star Wars figurines to your to your nativities growing up? I don't know that we ever did that, but I will say I nativities do have a special place in my heart because it's the thing I always get my mother when I'm traveling um, wherever mm-hmm. I am in the world. I will look for I will seek out a nativity um, to bring home to her, um, and so she every Christmas displays those. And so I I have a great fondness in my heart for creative takes on uh, nativity scenes that maybe you aren't finding it at Bronner's Christmas World store um, mm-hmm. in Michigan. But how about you? What, what what are your thoughts on this unconventional nativity scene? Well, so on the one hand, I aesthetically, I, I don't find it, you know, all that beautiful. Um, and that's one of the one of the criticisms that a lot of people had that like in this year where it seems like all of our traditions are being upended by the pandemic, people just wanted something familiar and beautiful and comforting in their in their Vatican nativity scene. Um, and I kind of get that. But I also really like the idea of, you know, showcasing cultures and giving uh, different people uh, a chance to express themselves and, and what they love about their local culture. It kind of reminded me of some of the things we talked about with Fratelli Tutti, um, that that even as we look um, to all of our bre- brothers and sisters, we need to stay grounded in our local traditions. So there are people from this uh, this region of Italy who were defending it and saying like, hey, I, I recognize our culture in this scene and that's wonderful. Also, like, I, I just want to tell everyone to chill out because what, what they think <laughs> is, is pretty and normal is actually probably like, I don't know, saccharine like melancholic jesus that actually like is whitewashed and what have you and actually has no real root in any type of tradition and it just makes you feel comfortable but just have it you know tradition didn't stop in 1970 or 1940 right so we we're, we're open to adding new things i think and in, in catholicism and so this is a great example of that yeah. My favorite quote came from a, a man from the region who said that, hey, look, like the astronaut is shown bringing Jesus the moon and like what a profound act of worship that is. So I'm I'm on board with astronaut nativity. <laughs> I mean, I think this could probably feel a little petty because there's obviously so much bad happening in the world right now um, and a lot of bad happening at the Vatican. And so but on the other hand, it does feel nice to kind of argue about something like this where it doesn't feel so lady. Lower stakes. Yeah, lower stakes. It's nice to have good old-fashioned Catholic uh, wars about things like this. That's my takeaway. Definitely. (laughs) What's our next story, Zach? So last Friday, the Food and Drug Administration authorized Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine for emergency use. You may have already seen this. Um, And people around the United States have already started getting the vaccine. And the U.S. bishops put out a statement this week telling Catholics that getting the vaccine should, quote, be considered an act of love of our neighbor and part of our moral responsibility for the common good. Right. Um, And as they encourage people to get this vaccine, they also address the concerns that some Catholics might have about um, drugs that are produced using cells from aborted fetuses. Uh, So we talked about this last week, but we will say it again. Neither the Pfizer nor the Moderna vaccine, um, which is probably going to be approved soon, were produced from cells from aborted fetuses. So they are not morally compromised. Uh, There are other ones in development, like the one from AstraZeneca, that um, are compromised in that way. Um, 
But even in that case, the bishops say we don't need to be picky about taking these vaccines and there are different uh, degrees of moral responsibility and that Catholics can take aren't cooperating in evil when they receive vaccines. Yeah, most Catholics on a day to day basis are not in a position to be able to choose which vaccine they're getting in a global pandemic like this. And so I think they rightly point this out. But this does bring us to a point that we wanted to make for all Catholics that are listening to this podcast and maybe other people of goodwill uh, who are, you know, thinking about the vaccine. Right. So first, when it's your turn to get the vaccine, do it. Um, There there are uh, injustices to be concerned about, about the distribution of the of the vaccine and whether uh, poor nations will will get the will have access, or if it'll reach people like those in prisons or in uh, immigration detention centers. But those are those are problems kind of above our pay grade. Right. Most most of us, the biggest moral decision we have is whether or not we're going to get it. And so, unequivocally, just get the vaccine when it's your turn. Right. So vaccines by themselves do not save lives. Vaccination programs do. So um, this isn't going to work unless most of us do it. And this is what the bishops say that you should do as a Catholic. Right. Um, Brings us to our second thing that we wanted to say to people listening right now. If there's someone in your life who has questions about the vaccine um, or vaccines in general, try to help answer them as patiently and firmly as you can. Right. Not everyone is an anti-vaxxer who has questions about this. We've never developed a vaccine this fast before. Right. So this has literally never happened. It's amazing. Super cool. Um, But. That doesn't necessarily mean that we have something to worry about in any serious way about taking this vaccine. Um, So try to listen to people's questions. Try to answer them the best you can. Don't be afraid to say, I don't know. Um, Be able to point to people, to resources that are not maybe uh, 10 YouTube videos deep into a weird playlist. Um, Because instructing the ignorant is a spiritual work of mercy. Don't forget. Right. So in sum, get your shots. And now stick around for our conversation with Greg Iwinski. Joining us from Jersey City is Greg Iwinski. Greg is an Emmy-nominated comedy writer and performer, and he currently writes for Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Welcome to Jesuitical, Greg. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Disclosure, Greg and I have been friends um, for quite a while, uh, and it's finally good to be uh, drinking with you while we're recording something, because we usually have really good thoughts, um, but no one ever hears them. (laughs) Uh, So this is a welcome, welcome addition. (laughs) Yeah, I think about the last time... I think about the last time we were drinking together was in a bar that is was so small and not clean and packed that mm-hmm. it now seems unimaginable. I don't even remember where it was, but some bar that we found because it was rainy and we needed to go inside and just drinking in there. And now how many parts of that seem totally infeasible? I know. Hopefully they are. They'll be back for us the next time we're able to venture outside again. Um, I wonder if we could go back to maybe closer to when you and I first met. Um, you were very involved in the quote unquote Catholic world. I think it's fair to say you went to Steubenville. You were working in uh, youth and young adult ministry circuit. You were you were producing media for Life Teen. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, I was um, a professional Catholic. I um, grew up in a uh, in a Life Teen parish, and then um, went to Steubenville, got a bachelor's in theology. You know that whole thing. 
thought I might be a priest, did a quick jaunt in seminary, and then ended up, yeah, producing media, making, I believe, the first podcast that Life Teen had made. I think it was myself and uh, a guy, Adam, who's doing some cool stuff in LA and now, but um, we just one night said, let's start making podcasts. And because nobody knew what they were, they didn't stop us. So we just started <laughs> putting up podcasts. I think I was doing movie reviews and uh, we're doing like gospel readings and just whatever we could record into a microphone. So you you leave that behind, though, to kind of chase this comedy dream in Chicago. Um, and I'm wondering, what was it like to be, you know, working in the church and then to kind of follow this call um, or, or this vocation? I don't know if you would use that word um, outside of it. Um, I think the word I would use instead of vocation is maybe the word that's close to that is like mission, but that still is a little bit too, I think, charged a word. It was really that I like being Catholic, or, or I would have left. I've, I've had plenty of reasons, both personal and global, to leave. Um, but I, I like it, and I find it a bedrock to stability in my life. Um, but doing work was not the fulfilling part of it. Working for it and putting in time. And by the time I left, I had been doing part or full-time ministry for almost 10 years of kind of professionally being a Catholic. And something that became less and less uh, exciting or palatable to me was somebody who said, well, my job is being holy and telling you how to be holy and that person not having taken religious vows. Like the idea that your job was just to be an example of holiness felt like something that the religious would do. And I had already been to seminary and known that wasn't going to be something I did. So what brought you to comedy? Um, I had always written. I'd always been writing and I had always been in the groups of friends that I had uh, funny and I mean, in those when I was in my youth group, I was the guy writing and being in the the sketches that got played on Sunday. And when I was at Franciscan, I was doing you know joke stuff there. And we had a fake radio show, or we had a radio show on a half watt station that we basically just did jokes. I I had a bit on that where I said, "If you're the second caller, I will give you five dollars." And the first caller was my dad calling from Arizona. And there was no second caller. No one, nobody <laughs> no one was listening. <laughs> so yeah, so I got to keep it. Um, I had always been that person who looked at things and said, basically, I mean, this being a Catholic podcast, like my Catholicism gives me such a firm bedrock of like, of joy and hope and love for people, even when I don't feel like it, that it lets me look at the rest of it much more like uh, it's all dust and it will return to dust. And that lets you take things non-seriously. Did you see attention, though? I think a lot of people think I don't know, there's like family friendly comedy that like you could do on a life teen podcast. But when most people think of comedy, they think of, you know, profane or inappropriate or mean spirited content. Um, was that attention for you or do you not really see that? I think what you're saying, Ashley, there's ch there's church funny and actual funny. <laughs> yeah. <right>? Actual <laughs> can you be actually funny without like tearing people down? Yeah, I think you can. And I think w that never, that didn't grind into me as much as the idea of if I died, would I have to look at God in the face and him go, hmm, how about these jokes? And I'd go, oh yeah, these are, <laughs> and my bar for that is not exactly you know, where the professional Christian road comics is, I think, because there is a vulgarity to Catholicism that is washed away by American Protestant influenced Catholicism, the kind of like evangelicalism of, of the American church has suck, soaked up some of that puritanical stuff. And it's like, 
the Catholic faith is incredibly vulgar. Like we eat body and blood. We touch things. We hold bones and keep pieces of dead people and use them as like things to pray with. And we, you know, and we have like baptisms of dunking babies viscerally underwater and ripping them back out like death. And the humor is vulgar. And there is a connection to those, not in the sense that it's always dirty, but that it is dirty like the dirt of the earth. And so to me, there are things that are funny that, yes, that are not intentionally offensive, but that are that might bristle people or do those uh, do that in some way. But there is a big difference to me in terms of comedy having a curse word in it or it um, referencing sex or something happening like that. And then comedy that goes, this person is a victim in their life and their victimhood is something that we will all laugh at. And that's what I didn't ever want to do. I think about John Paul II talking about how so much media turns into fantasy uh, entertainment, the kind of suffering that real people go through. And so I think about that a lot with comedy of that. I don't want to take someone who is already being victimized by circumstance, by an oppressor, by someone else, by life, um, by addiction or sin, and then me be the one who piles on to make fun of them. Do you think that Jesus was funny? Has the Bible well, ever I, made you that laugh? Um, be, no, but <laughs> as you imagine the way I mean, I think was. I think if you were a theology major, the the phrase in the Bible "rise up, bald head" made all of us laugh mm-hmm. at some point in our lives. Um, <laughs> that's about as blue as uh, I will get on the show. Um, I don't think that Jesus Jesus didn't strike me as particularly funny. I think that there are people in the Bible that are funny, both in their candor. I think that people who are there's a silliness in sometimes, especially with the, you know, with the apostles. I think we think of the apostles as these kind of dumb goofballs because they're always like, well, Jesus, we should do this. And he rebukes them. And they made, they're like always blundering over these mistakes. But they all got murdered at the end. Like they weren't dumb wimps. They were guys who were literally willing to die for Christ and give up their whole life. But the way that they react to things that are so miraculous, that is a conflict to me that seems inherently funny. That this guy is working miracles and doing all these things. And then he's like, who, you know, who do you say that I am? And they're like, I don't, they just start guessing. And I don't know. I would have. So were the gospel (laughs) writers trying to be funny? I think, I think there is an inherent, I think that part of comedy is conflict and clashing of things. It's why like a big, uh, you know, like it's like a big muscly wrestler being afraid of a mouse is funny because it's a conflict. And I think there is a conflict to how divine and miraculous Christ is and how human the disciples are and the conflict of like you can that bridging that gap of understanding is always going to be kind of funny because it's it is like it's superman and a bike messenger and they're just so far apart that they're never going to find that much common ground in terms of understanding what's going on yeah you think that that like uh end of john's gospel where they're cooking breakfast on the beach that has to be like someone is cracking a joke about how insane that is, right? Like they're seeing this dead guy come back and they just went back to fishing. Like none of that, had, like like everything that had just happened, you know, <laughs> failed. And then he shows up and is like, nope, just kidding. Ha ha, I'm back. Make me some breakfast. <laughs> well, I think too that the, the, the humor ratio goes up and up after Christ because I think, again, there's an inherent baseline of hope that the saints have as years go on that I think provide a better bedrock for humor. So the idea of like saying, you know, a saint being cooked alive and saying, flip me over, I'm, 
I'm done on this side, like that kind of thing. Or, um, was it, I forget what, was it John the 23rd who said that, you know, how many people work in the Vatican about half? Mm -hmm. Like, I think those kinds of things there have been definitely funny people in the church. And I think it again, ties into that ability to speak concisely and clearly a truth, uh, in a way that's detached from fear of consequence. That's like my very heady comedy distillation. (laughs) (laughs) So you're a theology major and I don't know why I just thought of this or noticed this, but humor and humility, are they, do they come from the same word? And is there a connection between like being humble and not taking yourself too seriously and being able to like engage in humor? I'm going to have to, Zach might also know. I I believe they come. (laughs) But let's pretend like they do. Let's just say, yes, it's the same word. Yeah. Yeah. I believe hummus is either a smush chickpea food or it's the root word for both of them that has to do with earth and dirt. Right. And so remembering remembering that you are dirt and therefore you can make fun of yourself, right? Yes. And I think you can make fun of yourself and your circumstances. I think even you can see in in some what people call gallows humor and the idea that like even when things are most dark, people find humor in understanding that there is something bigger than just my circumstances. Like the, it's the detachment from where you are and what you're doing to be able to laugh at it. And I think that's why you can see in comedy that, that historically comedians being underdogs, being outcasts, being lower class, those things have worked better because they have an inherent humility forced upon them. And that then if you become super successful and you're rich and you're flying private jets to your gigs to be driven in a limousine, it becomes harder and harder to find things that there's that humility and that humor in because your problems aren't as big of problems. You know, gal's humor is actually a great thing to bring up because we're talking at the end of 2020, which is um, a great uh, a year for gallows, I suppose, or gallows humor. Do you? Yeah, fe- big year for gallows. Yeah. This was a huge. Gallows had a, a bomb of 2020. Yeah, they are not picking in the should, lottery. Should have invested in gallows at the beginning of the year. <laughs> so, what's been your reality this year, and how has it uh, affected your comedy? I think I. How do I say this? I give even less f's <laughs> about if my comedy is safe. Um, because time is fleeting and people die and the world can shut down because one bat mutated a virus. And so increasingly to me, the kind of second half of the 1900s in the United States is going to be an aberrant blip in, in human history where, wow, it was cool. Nobody died and there was no widespread suffering. And we had all this amazing stuff going on and like everybody was prosperous and that that is not a life that people our age experienced or anybody but the boomers did, but that that's not where we're going back to. And so looking at this and going, okay, well, I have no idea how much of tomorrow is guaranteed has changed. I think a lot of both my comedy and also in understanding it, uh, what I'm afraid to do or not do. And I think that that sounds, there's, there's a very kind of gross, especially male comedian thing of like, Oh, I tell the truth. I break, break boundaries and push, push edges, blah, blah. And I'm not, I don't care about doing that. I just mean in the sense of like rich, powerful people, people who hold up white supremacy, people who are building this architecture that destroys the poor. They don't want you talking about them and making fun of them because they're trying to pay you to do things that sells commercials. So talking about that stuff and folding that kind of uh, vehement Catholicism into the points of view of my comedy has something that I think 
has come much more out of 2020 because you go, what have you got to lose? Well, we all have our jobs. We all have those things that are our livelihoods that we don't want to lose. But in the sense of, of standing, I have no correspondence dinner to impress. I have no like Christmas party of venture capitalists I need to go to or kid I need to get into a fancy private school. I don't need those things. So it, it's been very St. Francis-y in me and trying to go like, well, what of these robes can I throw off and just be a poor comedian, uh, you know, kind of status-wise, just doing the best stuff that I can do? Well, I think that's interesting because most when I think when most listeners heard you say, oh, I, I don't need to be safe in my comedy, there's this, there's this whole, you know, discourse around comedy not being good anymore because of cancel culture. And, you know, if only comedians were able to buck that, it, things would go back to being funny. But that's, you're saying there's something much deeper going on, right? Well, yeah, because I, I mean, I would say that I don't believe that cancel culture exists because I would say a baseline understanding of cancel culture is a bunch of people get mad at you and then they deny you economic opportunity and you have been canceled, quote unquote, by being taken out of the workplace and out of the cultural conversation and removed, and then you no longer have an opportunity to work or to say what you want to say. And that has not happened to anyone who has not committed a crime. Um, what happens is, politically, is if you say a bunch of things that are essentially, like an example of, like, you know, let we make up Mr. Right-Wing whatever who goes online and says, I'm being canceled. You said a bunch of things that you believe are comedic, but essentially they're just masking that you, your essential premise is these people are bad. I hate them. I hate people who are different than me. I hate brown people. I hate Democrats. I hate whoever. And I'm going to try to mask that with quote unquote comedy by making it absurd or using a metaphor or whatever else. And it turns out people didn't like that. And my actions had consequences. And the consequences were nobody wanted to associate with me anymore because I was mean and gross and bad. That's not getting canceled because that person then doesn't become homeless. They then find a new legion of fans who go, wait, we also hate people who are different. We also dislike immigrants. We also uh, want to punish people who we find distasteful. And so we'll give you money to tell us that stuff. And now they have a new career that is not being canceled. It's, it's telling a packed audience, I have been canceled. It is using a megaphone to say, I have been silenced. So I, I haven't, I don't think cancel culture is a thing that even exists before we get to the idea of could, should comedy say things that people do or do not like. I wonder if we could pivot a little bit to um, maybe a postmortem on the election and the Trump presidency, uh, not unlike the media. Um, and you hinted at this already. You know, comedy had a complicated relationship with Trump's presidency. I, I feel like people were always saying, you know, oh, this is just like an SNL skit or this is beyond parody. But Nonetheless, it seems like he was sort of the 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 eye of everyone's attention. Well, they would say it's beyond parody and then just like reenact it on SNL. So but I, I never found that yeah, funny. I, I, I felt like <laughs> it's, the yeah. thing is, the reason I think that it becomes hard to parody is you can only parody someone that is seriously that takes themselves seriously and believes what they're saying. So when someone is detached, when someone is going, I'll say literally anything and I will believe literally anything that's advantageous to me, then you can't make what they do absurd because their position is already absurd. It's like when I was coming up in high school, we were all worried about relativism. Everyone's going to be relativist. This is the this is the evolution of relativism to just lack of realityism. 
Like, you know, that the, the woman who went viral in that Michigan hearing talking about fake ballots and stuff is not a, attached to a permanent solid reality. She doesn't have reality permanence. So it's, you can't make up something that she wouldn't do because she would do anything. So what is the right posture? What's the right posture for a comedian? And when you're facing something like that, is it still like possible to like speak truth to power or I don't know, how would you approach it? I mean, the hope is that power isn't always so dumb <laughs> that even if they're bad, they're not that dumb. Like my favorite thing that happened in four years of Trump and I watched hundreds of hundreds of hours of him. Like I have, I have watched so many, th- I've watched him read the snake so many times. Um, is when he said, maybe we can bring light inside the body. And I watched it again. As a cure for COVID. Oh, as a cure for COVID, <laughs> that we could bring light and we, we could, in, we could inject in the, into the body, but we could the, bring a powerful light inside the body. And I cried laughing. I watched it over and over and over because it was, it was, that was great comedy. If you had written it, it would have been perfect because you have the most powerful person in the world going, what if light bulb on inside, <laughs> which is, you, you can't, this is an idea. You can't just distill, distill down into a dumber idea. Like it's like if someone said, you know, like, what if I put fireworks in a tailpipe and you're hearing it from the president of the United States? And it was so beautifully comedic if it wasn't terrifying. And so as we move forward into people that aren't necessarily that dumb, I think it'll be easier to make fun of them because they will be attached to reality. And when we do something like, you know, like when we make fun of Joe Biden's ideas of race that are based in 1965, they'll be attached to something permanent that we can make fun of instead of Trump, who literally could just say the punchline you wrote for him. So do you, looking back, do you think that comedy did an adequate job during Trump's administration or, or have we learned the lessons that we need to to sort of pivot back to someone who's more attached to at least a permanent reality. I mean, what is, what is comedy's job? Make people laugh. I mean, yeah, that's where I think it's like, did it, that's like, I did, did we beat and Trump? I didn't laugh. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't laugh a lot at any of the comedy around Trump. Yeah. I, and I mean, that's the thing. I think it's like, it, there's, there's kind of so many ways to go from that, that question, because it's like, comedy's not going to beat Trump. Charlie Chaplin didn't beat Hitler. Like comedy doesn't beat anything. It helps you keep from giving up maybe, but really you should have like other things in your life that have more meaning that hopefully do that. Like comedy was comedians tried their best and maybe people laughed and some people liked it is, is kind of the bar. I think that the only reason that I think comedy has had to pivot to being journalism is because journalism has failed so spectacularly. If they were doing their job, we wouldn't have to. Yeah, I was going to say, because like you say, when I look at someone, or I, I don't watch that much like stand up or anything. But when I think of someone like a Jon Stewart or a Stephen Colbert, they, you know, they call themselves comedians, but then they do. They seem to take on a political role and then when sometimes kind of backtrack and they're like, oh, no, I'm just a comedian. So do you think most comics actually see their job as making people laugh or do they... I don't know. I would honestly think at a very blunt level, most comedians see their job as getting paid. What, do, what, what's going to get that audience to keep coming back and give me money? I think, uh, in the same way that there are musicians that really want to do 
like interpretive jazz, but guess what? Pop songs pay the bills. And so like, I think with a lot of touring comedians and, and road comics, and even with people on television, it's like you, at some point, the audience is there for something and that's what you're giving them. And that, you know, like SNL, they want ad parodies and uh, celebrities playing against type. So I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what everyone is going to do. I think that if journalism can embrace the candor that comedy has had in the last era, that would be great because then comedians wouldn't have to do it. Like for some weird reason, journalists who are the, they are the self-congratulating arbiters of truth, fourth estate. We make movies about how great we are every five years that win a bunch of Oscars. Oh my gosh, journalists were so whatever. They couldn't just say Trump was racist for like years. They couldn't say that Trump lied. They couldn't say that he was doing something that was illegal. And it, it took an army of people on the, e the internet, comedians and not, to be like, could you just say the truth out loud to get them to go like, Trump's racist. And then Kamala Harris said it and everyone's like, wow, I can't believe she said it. Oh, wow. She said it so quickly. She just said it without even thinking about it. How could she do this? Here's how. She's black and she doesn't have time to equivocate. So she just went, he's racist. You know how I know? Because of what he says and does. And the fact that journalism can't do that, both on television and in print, for some inexplicable reason other than maybe slavery to capitalism, it means that comedians have to be the ones pulling their hair out going like, look, this guy's racist. Here's what he said and did. And we can say it because we're less afraid of the consequences because we are the goofballs in the corner. So hopefully that dynamic can change and we can go back to be doing jokes about farts because that's what I would love to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a lot of fun. Uh, we have one final question for you. Um, if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, who would it be and why? Ooh, man. Jesus Christ. <laughs> as far as I know, he is not a saint. Is that correct? That I believe that is correct. Uh... Okay. I feel like a big oversight. Really miss it. We're really... Uh, missing the boat <laughs> I'm, I can't even fault it because you've got the theology degree and so I uh, gonna have to let that slide uh, yeah. Saint can I I'm gonna take the hard it's the hard no, take but yeah. make your pitch like make your pitch for I'm just saying Jesus it's like uh, has is anyone else part fully God uh, no and so, I mean, obviously Saint there also worked a ton of miracles. We don't have to get the whole, oh, do you have two miracles? We've got several books of miracles. Yeah. Um, also showed up places like afterwards. There's already statues built, so we can skip that because we have like the one in Brazil. <laughs> and we've got all sorts of, it's the, the groundwork's already laid. So I'm just going to go ahead and have the bold take. I know this will upset Catholic internet. And this Jesus is nice. Jesus Christ should be canonized. This is nice because then I can finally start praying to him. <laughs> yes, exactly. Do you? I mean, I don't have a holy card of Jesus Christ, but I got a bunch of saint ones. So, <laughs> All right, just well, just saying, yeah. Saint Jesus Christ. All right, Saint Jesus right. Christ. Uh, pray Greg, for us. where can uh, people follow you and find your work? Uh, you can uh, find my work on uh, my Twitter, uh, which links to most of my work, and that's at Gary Jackson. It's not my name, but it is my name on Twitter, Gary Jackson. Uh, and also, I have a new Star Wars podcast. Nothing that you've heard in the last 30 minutes would imply that I have a Star Wars podcast. But um, I have a podcast called Yub Nub that I do with two other late night comedy writers. And we talk about um, it's a Star Wars podcast for people who actually like Star Wars instead of the people on the Internet who just say they're fans and hate Star Wars. Love it. 
Awesome. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. And I hope you and the family have a Merry Christmas and a not miserable New Year. (laughs) You too. You too. Thanks, Greg. All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. First, we wanted to update our Patreon community. Uh, Whether you participated in the Fratelli 2D reading group or not, you can view all of the discussions uh, up on the Patreon website. So we recorded those Zoom sessions, uh, so you can go back and look at those. Plus, we are providing a PDF study guide. So each week, Zach and I gave a breakdown of the chapters and provided some discussion questions. And we wanted to make that available to you in case you wanted to start your own reading group with the encyclical. So you can check that out at patreon.com slash Media. And we're in the final week of Advent, or we almost are, depending on when you're listening to this. And there's still a chance to pick up some new devotions or finish strong with ones that you maybe started at the beginning and have abandoned in the middle. Um, so we wanted to point you to American Media's The Word Advent Reflection Series. These are coming out in podcast and written form. Both Ashley and I have contributed a couple. Um, they're really great. They're only five minutes and it's a really nice way to stay connected, do a little something extra, um, and also connect with the gospel of the day. So check that out. It's The Word. It's in your podcast feed where you're listening to this one. And finally, we wanted to ask one last time for your audio consolations this year. So for our last episode for 2020, we want to do something special for Christmas. Um, And that means highlighting uh, the places where you found God in your lives uh, during this really difficult year. So uh, if you record a voice memo and send it over to jesuitical at americamedia.org, we'll try to get those into our last episode. All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God in our lives this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? I've got a consolation this week, and it's directly related to the thing we just asked for. Um, So a lot of you have started sending in your consolations, uh, and I've been listening to them as they come in. And I I don't know what to expect with this. I thought this would be cool or good or something, but... um, I don't know. This pandemic has been tough for a lot of reasons. And one of them is like you and I are still face sharing um, every week Mm -hmm. here, but hearing other young people (laughs) talk about their, their faith and where they're looking for God is something I've really missed. And to hear other people sort of reflecting back what we're trying to do every week is, was just really, I don't know, beautiful and reminded me that this isn't, uh, the way that it is going to be forever, right? We are going to be able to get back to hanging out, meeting up in person, um, talking about things like this. And so that is giving me a little bit of hope this week. And like I said earlier, I will take hope wherever I can get it. So thank you to (laughs) everyone who's written in and sent in their consolations from this dumpster fire of a year. (laughs) Uh, That's so good to hear. I haven't listened to them yet. So I'm happy I have another consolation to look forward to. That's right. What do you got this week though? I do have a consolation. Uh, So this week I once again found myself waiting in a line to get a COVID test. 
it was very cold and I was trying not to feel sorry for myself. And thankfully, I edited this really great piece by a priest last week um, about uh, waiting in line, the spirituality of waiting in line uh, for the COVID test um, and how you can, you know, see it as a a corporal work of mercy uh, standing there in order to um, not just protect yourself, but protect the vulnerable people around you. So I was like trying to like pray with that and um, and like (laughs) see myself in that light, which is kind of counterproductive. Like it ended up by the time I got into the inside and was warm again, I was just like feeling good about myself for for this like huge sacrifice I'm making, (laughs) which obviously (laughs) it's not. Um, But then I get in and I'm I'm getting I'm getting getting the test from a woman and you can tell she's just like exhausted. She's been in this huge, like, uh, whitewashed room with terrible lighting and has probably been there for eight hours. And yet she like, she had on these like, uh, reindeer ears or antlers, um, and was still just like so kind, even though she was exhausted. And I was just like immediately broken out of my own like self-centeredness and, um, just like filled with gratitude for for the people who are actually sacrificing their health and time uh, every single day um, to to help people like me, uh, make it possible for for me to to travel to see my family um, for Christmas. Um, so it was just like a good good moment of like I would you know I I tried my own way of like making this a, a spiritual moment, and God was like, nope, that's not it. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna show you it's not about you, but other people very clearly. Um, so that was, that was my consolation this week. (laughs) Yeah, that's really beautiful. And thank you for continuing to get tested. What was that article, by the way, that you were editing? So it was by, uh, Monsignor Brian Bransfield, a priest, uh, in, in Philadelphia. And it's called waiting for a COVID test is more than just standing in line. It's an act of mercy and it's really beautiful. So I'd recommend checking that out on americamagazine.org. All right. Well, and we will be sure to link to it in our show notes as well. All right, get us out of here so we yep. can go play in the snow. <laughs> Jesuitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundra. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.